Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. All right. Today's reading is from the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 104. My soul, praise God. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind, and making the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He established the earth on his foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the waters fed. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They sing among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes man's heart glad, making his face shine with oil, and bread that sustains man's heart. How countless are your works, Lord. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. In the beginning, Marduk created the heavens and the earth. This is functionally a line from the Babylonian creation myth. There were all sorts of gods, this belief that the cosmos were chaotic and wild and unformed. Abzu, the god of fresh river water, and his wife, Timat, the goddess of the salt waters of the deep, ruled over all the other gods. But the other gods created so much noise that Abzu could never rest, and he plotted to kill them all. However, then Enki and Mumu, the gods of knowledge, found out about Abzu's plot. They killed him. Then came a great battle between Marduk and Tiamat. It went like this. Marduk killed each of the serpents that Tiamat had created to defend herself. Then Marduk killed Tiamat. Marduk used a great wind to split half of Tiamat into two. The first two became the ocean, and the other half became a dome of water above the earth. Uh, it also, there's language around becoming the Tigris and the Euphrates. The remainder of her corpse created the heavens and the earth, and her blood created humankind, which would become Marduk's slaves and fight to defeat the world's barbarian people, literally those who um, created too much noise, which is where we get the idea, the term Babel. This was the creation story of the Babylonian Empire. We talked a lot about them when we went through our series in Daniel. Military superpower in the 6th century BC. This creation story, like all narratives, was well engineered to shape and reinforce the mindset among the people 
that was favorable to an empire that was ruthless, that was cruel, that was a war machine. Narratives shape us, ways that we think about history and the world and how things came into being. If there ever was a moment in history, if you've been paying attention to um, like consistent narratives on, let's say, the left and the right within politics, we know, we know just how slippery truth is. We know just how much certain narratives can be weaponized, manipulated, and spun in a particular direction. Now, because the empire, the Babylonian empire, led by Nebuchadnezzar in this, the time that I'm going to tell this story, was in the service of Marduk, and everyone who got in its way was just noise, was just babble. Nothing that supported the empire could be understood as too cruel. This was the story. Now, there was this nation of Israel, lived on this very narrow land bridge between the Mediterranean Sea and the Arabian Desert which was Africa, Europe, and Asia. I think we actually have a little icon of the Marduk story, if you want to throw that up. There it is. So the empires, every empire knew, any emperor with like half a brain knew that if you had any hope of conquering the known world or controlling the known world, you had to control this land bridge that Israel lived on. So in 589 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was armed with a military and a creation store, and he went for it. When King, uh, uh, King Zebekiah of Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, so the Israel's king, refused to pay tribute to Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar dispatched his army in numbers, like they didn't want to like, go softly. And so he dispatched the army in numbers that shocked the people of Judah. His infantry marched around the Sea of Galilee and then due south when it surrounded the land uh, and laid siege to Jerusalem. Uh, it was absolutely just one of the most like, miserable months of humanity passed down a historical record that took place. With Jerusalem unable to import food or any other resources, it descended into disease, starvation, terror, even civil war. When the Babylonian army finally then attacked, after they had like, kind of almost broken the will of the people, it was hardly a fight. The terrified population was quickly put in chains by the tens of thousands. When Zedekiah and his family were captured... Zedekiah was made to watch Babylonian soldiers execute each member of his family one by one. Then having watched the event and all its agony, it was Zedekiah's turn, but he wasn't punished by execution. Instead, the soldiers told him that his punishment would be for the last thing he would ever see would be the execution of his family, and then they blinded him. Prisoners began the agonizing and exhausting march then to Babylon, this now enslaved people, a thousand miles Overland, uh, overland journey uh, in shackles through the desert to a life of slavery. Many didn't survive. Uh, we read about this in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps, for there our captors asked for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So, the Babylonian creation story, this odd, out there, mythological story, was actually an essential driving force of this empire and its worldview. Every culture has a story, and the Babylonian creation story reinforced the, like, the limits of people's imagination. The empire was all there is, and so what the gods said 
This is how things were supposed to be. This is how the world worked. Violence, chaos, is what is at the center of the universe. This was their story. The Hebrew people, though, they had a different story. One that actually around the time of that the Babylonian Christian myth was written down, we see the, the Hebrew story, the Israel story, the story that we find here in Genesis 1 was also written down and marked out. The way it was written actually took elements of Marduk's pro-empire, anti-humanity creation story, and then repurposed it. It was subversive. It was like so much of the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but the phrase, Jesus is Lord, is a co-opting of Roman propaganda. It wasn't an implicitly Christian phrase. I mean, it was insofar as people would say, our God is Lord. But the way it's written, Jesus is Lord, was literally a way of taking where people would run around saying, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. It was a subversive act. Lest we think there are not sociological, justice-oriented dimensions to the Scripture. And so we read, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. Not accident, not chance. In the beginning, God created. The earth formless and void, God said, let there be light. Let there be sky. Let the water under the sky be gathered Water and ocean, this was all represented chaos in the ancient world. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky. God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let the land produce living creatures. And this refrain comes up again and again in the creation story that was so different. So, so wildly different and strange from every other creation myth at that time and since. So many historians and sociologists love to reflect on just how shaped the modern world is by this one stinking little poem. It was good. It was good. It was very good. Pictures of everyone being made in the image of God. Good. We talk about original sin because it's real. Because there's a deep, implicit brokenness to us. But the beginning of the story actually begins with original goodness. We were made in the image of God. We were made good and beautiful. The basic claims of creation stories in the ancient Near East were that the universe was created in the aftermath of conflict and violence. And the Bible claims something so different. That the one true creator God who made everything gave birth to this world not out of conflict or war or jealous infighting, but out of an overflow of creativity and love. Very good, very good, very good. I got this, um, I didn't know you could do this until recently. On my phone, I set it that every hour it rotates a new photo from my photos, just automatically. Anyone do this? Anyone have this, do this feature? No, it's pretty sweet. But it gets weird every once in a while. I tried to like select like it like gave one of those like facial recognition things, right? You know, the beginning of like, we're seeing the beginning of like Terminator, right? We all know that, right? They can like scan our faces and no, any Terminator references? Gen, Gen Xers in the room? Okay. Anyway, 
it can scan faces. So I thought I selected like just like, oh, some, a couple friends and, and like mostly just like my family and then some like landscapes. I think that was like a button I could push. Anyway, it's usually just like sweet pictures of my daughters or my wife. But every once in a while, it's like, uh, it's like Bretton Johnson, our kid city director. <laughs> or the other day I looked at it and it was like my mother-in-law. Like big weird picture. I don't even know how it got in there. Like she's like, Hasn't gotten like, like, man, what pictures do I have in here that are going to accidentally come up? But you know what's so interesting is every time a photo comes up, especially of the kids, I immediately screenshot it and like send it to Corey. Or if I'm like, you know, walking next to Jenny, I'm like, oh my gosh, Jenny. Like even now, I'm just like, look at there. Look how little Harper. Right? We, we, any grandparents in a room, right? Like you walk around with photos of your grandkids all the time, ready to show them. Like it's like a badge. Right, not because you forget what they look like, or you, you, I don't know, you're just really like desperate for show and tell, but it, it's, it, it's this overflow of love that you have. Like the nature of the question, um, isn't she adorable? Or, or, or for those of you who travel a lot, like I know you like just show pictures, you're constantly posting on Instagram, like these beautiful sites, like isn't this amazing? The nature of that question is an invitation you find your kids so adorable. You found that scene so beautiful that your first impulse, your first impulse is to invite someone else into the joy. Jenny, you just got to smile. And she's probably like, I don't care about your three-year-old in a tutu. But for a minute, Jenny's polite smile fills me with joy. Why? Because I just want to invite others into it. The Genesis story is the exact same way. Theologians for centuries have been talking about this. It is out of the overflow of God's love that he makes the world. This is the question in the ancient world that the Genesis poem answered. What's the engine of creation? What's the story? What drives it? Because our inner drives are shaped by the stories that we believe about our hearts and we believe about our world. And Genesis 1 tells us that the God that we worship and in whose image we were made is a God of love who loves to create. He literally gives us the power to create. We co-create with God. This is the story. The first command is to cultivate the earth. Make something of the raw elements. Make guacamole and then make more of it. Like go forth and cut the cilantro. Like this is this beautiful story that we're invited into, and we're like, yeah, of course. I mean, everyone knows, like, we're all made in the image of God, or even if I don't believe in God, yeah, of course, things are good, and we're made good, and it's lovely, and the universe is like a benevolent place. And we sort of sometimes in our culture, at least in the West, take that sort of, I those general ideas for granted, and they are rooted in one particular spot, in one particular unique narrative, and it's this one. It's wild. The Bible is full of all sorts of like explosive poetic accounts about this creation. The one that Tony just read, Psalm 104. It, it, it's explosive in this over-the-top poetry. This isn't scientific language that's being, that we're reading here. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent, and he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. I mean, it's like a, like a poetry reading. 
we even get this placement. He makes the, um, of where humans fit in the creative order. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate. Wine that gladdens human hearts. Oil to make their faces shine and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon where he planted. It's like all of it is good and beautiful. And he plants humanity right in the middle of all the other created creatures. It's this understanding that all of creation God rejoices in. There's that great passage where God's like, yeah, I made the ostrich and it's pretty dumb and silly. Go back and look up like ostrich God Bible. Just Google that later. I don't have time to get into it. It's this great little picture where the, the prophet is going like, God did not endow like this animal with much good sense at all, but oh my gosh, watch it run. He's enamored. It's, it, it's the language of a poet. It's the language of a creator, of a craftsman. And then even where he plants humanity, it's just interesting that, yeah, yeah, I've made people and they're very good and they are like crowned with glory in a special way for sure the scriptures pointed out. But God just kind of, I mean, the, the psalmist here just plants them right in the middle of like, yep, grass for cattle, water for trees, wine for people. Lest you think. Everyone go home and have a glass. No. <laughs> Some of you have go home and have a glass of wine. I mean, it is just beautiful. Psalms like this are all over the scriptures. God created with joy and he continues to create and sustain the world from this place of authority, security, and beauty. G.K. Chesterton um, imagines this. I have this quote on the screen. Is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. The eternal appetite of infancy. Sounds like an emo album name. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. We're the ones who've grown old. We're the ones that are haggard. We're the ones who get weird about like lifting my hands in worship or smiling or having any sort of joy or not being sarcastic and cynical every five seconds of the day. We're the ones who grow old. We're the ones who get haggard. This is why a series that we're doing called The One We Long For is about beholding God. What happens when we look at him and he is the one we keep our eyes focused on? Well, when we behold the God who's creator, the God who made everything. The God who just makes out of like oh, an overflow of love and joy and goodness. And a God who made you in a world where we are so tempted to play God all the time. What might that do to your heart? It's the most practical thing in the world. I'd love to be less of a haggard old man. Like the two guys in the, everyone remember the Muppets? The two guys who would sit in the upper balcony? Anyone? And they would just like critique and critique and critique. I had someone the other day I was meeting with go, I feel like I'm becoming those guys. Anyone else? You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> You're kind of becoming that a little bit. It's like low key. You don't present that way, but when you get together with your friends, all you do is like gossip, be, and moan. Right? Like, you, like it's just, as it comes out, it's like this instinct to put down, not to lift up, to critique, not to honor. 
This is, just, this is not a lightness like there used to be. You just want that lightness back. Everything just feels so heavy. I gotta perform, I gotta do this, I gotta compare. I'm just so heavy. But when we get our eyes up, what sort of joy comes from gazing upon the Lord who's made the world and says, really good. And by the way, you should rest once a week, full stop, and enjoy it. And then when you actually work, you're working from rest. You're working and joining me and helping cultivate and renew the beauty of the world. The scripture's story of the universe is in stark contrast to the popular myths and the popular stories of our day. Christianity makes the bold claim that there is a God who created the world and that this God did not create by accident or by necessity, but by intentionally but, but intentionally, with beauty and intimacy in mind. To the cry of the human heart, do I matter? Am I loved? Do I have a purpose? God the Father who created the world gives an ecstatic, yes. Yes. Do you matter? Yes. Are you loved? Yes. Do you have a purpose? Yes. We can take this for granted. This is a thoroughly and uniquely Judeo-Christian view. I don't say that as some sort of put down to other myths and ideas of the world and stories and narratives, but it's important to point out where this comes from. The famous philosopher and former atheist, Antony Flew, suggests in his book, There is a God, which you should read, is phenomenal. He says, science does not answer the most pressing questions of human existence because our questions are not about natural phenomena but about larger questions of meaning and purpose. They are philosophical and religious in nature. In other words, science does an excellent job of telling me why I don't have a tail. But it can explain why I find that interesting. A scientific worldview shines when dealing with parts and pieces, but it doesn't do all that much with my soul. Science, man, it does a brilliant job of explaining how we and other species adapted, evolved, got here, doing, they're wrestling through all of this fascinating information. But it falls short when it comes to where the reverence humming inside of me actually comes from. One of the great consequences of the Enlightenment and then the Industrial Revolution has been our culture's inflated sense of self. A lot of people have been talking about VR. Anyone getting into VR? Virtual reality? Everyone's like, man, this is dangerous. We're really going to be able to play God now. Porn's moving to VR. Sports are moving to VR. Like, it's all, like, I can live in my own world. And I just had this thought the other day, like, I don't know how, like, big a leap this is from how people are already living their life. You following me? Like, we're already so insulated from our world insulated from our natural world. We look up at the skyscrapers, we look up at the buildings, we look around us at our technology and forget that all those things, like you follow them all the way back and you simply have sand and plant life and rock and fire. We're so disconnected that we think we can sort of play God. The accelerated rise of technology has like taken this distortion so far that we are masters of our own destiny, which is why when anything rattles us like a pandemic, we like freak out. The universe is so much more complex than we can fathom. 
according to Saul Perlmutter, who won the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize in Physics, says our universe is continuing to expand at accelerating rates, and we do not know if and when it will stop. And yet, our culture encourages us to embrace self-determination and redefine our identities, to redefine even our own biology, and to create our own little worlds where we can play creator, we can play director, we can play protagonist. And the Bible has some words for that. It has some words for our ego. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah 45. Real quick background to this. There's unbelief in the land. There's these prophecy and promises that have been laid out for the Jewish people. They've been told some things are going to go a certain way, in an unexpected way, using unexpected people. And, and God's like, you're going to have to trust me. Isaiah is telling these people, God wants you to trust him. There's a lot of unbelief. I'm going to do something new through some people you don't expect. It doesn't quite square with how, things, how God has done things in the past. There is unbelief in the land, not unlike our time and our moment. There's unbelief in the land. I don't know if I can trust your promises. I don't know if I can trust. And so Israel is, begins to play God. They're taking things back and taking control. And we read this in Isaiah 45. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Now if that language feels a little tricky for you, I want to read it in this transliteration by this scholar named Eugene Peterson. So it's sort of like a, a, an emotional, uh, getting into the emotional text, um, and he writes it this way. I think this is also on the screen. Doom to you who fight your maker. You're a pot at odds with the potter. Does clay talk back to the potter? What are you doing? What clumsy fingers? Would a sperm say to a father, who gave you permission to use me to make a baby? Or a fetus to a mother, why have you cooped me up in this belly? That's so good, right? It's ridiculous. Woe is the word that begins these verses. Woe is literally funeral language, emphasizing the seriousness of what is taking place. To not see yourself as creature and see God as creator. To disagree with God's ordering of your life. Man, it, 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 at the bottom of this, it's a refusal to let God be God. A reversal, trying to reverse the roles in which the creature tries to make the creator or a servant to carry out the creature's plan. This is this like, deep warning that things will not go well for you. Now, without getting into like deep controversial things in our world right now, man, I hope you can connect some of the dots. Not just to like the big hot button stuff, but connect the dots to your own just internal world and household and life. Where am I playing God? Where are my eyes not on the God who has made all things good and new and true? Where can I trust that, do I fail to trust that his way is actually best? Woe to you, woe to you who sort of use God 
Who on earth do you think you are might be a better way to sum up this passage. Some of us today need a revelation of our creatureness. He made you. He made you. How might beholding that phrase change whatever's going on in your life? He made you. He made you. How might that shift the way that we weep over folks who aren't happy with how they were made? Who have a world telling them that the way that they were made is not good. That they need to change things about themselves. How might it cause us to weep? Weep. For the sin in our life. Where we just choose to straight up ignore Straight up ignore the good and beautiful commands of God. Some of us today need a revelation that we're not in the driver's seat. So I end today with Psalm 139. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. This is another ecstatic, poetic piece from the Lord. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is like too wonderful, too crazy, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I even go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I'm in the bed, you're there. Like if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far sides of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If surely I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness won't be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. You created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame is not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, you saw me. You saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them where I had to count them. Though you would outnumber the grains of sand when I am awake, I'm still with you. It's like the psalmist got a vision of just how loved and known he is and how good and perfect God is, and then he responds. There's no hiding from you, God, so I might as well, like, acknowledge that, fall in line and trust your way is better, or bow out. And so he ends saying, after he's already said, you've searched me and know me, he ends the psalm with, will you search me and know me? He begins with the affirmation, the truth, that like, you know what's going on. But like anybody who's like <laughs> ever been in recovery or any, everyone has ever experienced the power of confession, you know that there's something about, yep, okay, God, you know, but then there's something else about going, no, no, really, like I, I, need, you to, I, need, I need you to know that I know and I need that revelation to begin to transform and change me. Search me and know my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And then what does he say? Anyone know the song, how it ends? Lead me in the way everlasting. You gotta run in place when you say that one. Lead me in the way everlasting. It's like lead me into eternal life. 
Lead me to joy. Lead me to levity. Lead me out of my cynicism. Lead me into beauty. Allow me that peace that surpasses all understanding when I'm in the trenches. Lead me to joy. Search. I know you've already like known me, but would you know, would you, would you know me? When we behold like the psalmist here, when we get a revelation of just how much God cares for us, his wonderful works, we find two things. I find two things. I humbly submit that you consider them. These two things being simply um, like deep peace. I'm known by the God of the universe. What else might be like come from that? Can you imagine being known? Fear. Oh, shoot. <laughs> you know me. You can decide to get in line with the fact that God knows you and what's going on. That God has more for you. That even right today, like you don't have to wait like one more moment. Like today, you could say yes to Jesus for the first time, which is simply a way of being like, I, I, I trust, Lord, that, that you're good. Oh, or for some of you, it's like, I, I, I have been living in this state of unsurrender and living at a distance from God for too long today now. I just like, I recommit, I, I say yes again to saying, Lord, I want you to, to like know my heart and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to come in line with the knowledge that you have of me. I want you to come in line with the sin that you see with the ache that you see. I want to experience and trust that your kindness, Lord, will lead me out, that your mercy and your grace, Lord, are as truly like wide and high and deep and all of that. I can't comprehend it. Search me and know me. We long for God the Father our creative, our creator. <laughs> Week one of our series, the one we long for, we long for the God who has created us. And can I leave you with this as we go into a time of response, of worship, as we come to the altar, as we take time together to behold the Lord who made us. Can I just say, despite what it feels like at times, I genuinely believe that there is a deep longing for like permanent renewal in our generation. To catch a vision for, for Christ and his life that will set us on a lifelong trajectory. For many of us, as the world gets more complex, the longing for a simple and transformative experience with God has grown with it amidst our hyper-connected world where facts have eroded into subjectivity. There is this renewed cry for meaning and a renewed cry for truth. Does anyone else feel that? A longing that is leading people back to the Lord. The world longs for God. I long for God. And so moments like this, they matter because your heart matters and your faith matters. You're here for a reason, not by accident, created by God. God is entrusting you with this time. You're born into this moment. 
this moment, even with the decline of our faith, God has invited you to a rare and beautiful moment to say, Lord, would you do what you've done in the past again? A moment that can either stir you towards despair or stir up your hunger for him. And so rather than being discouraged with what's happening, allowing this moment and whatever else is going on in your life to fuel your faith, it'll allow you to press into what God offers. And so resist. Resist lukewarmness. Resist playing some sort of game of faith. Resist. Resist apathy at all, at all costs. Have resolve in your heart to draw near to the God who made you. To resist the plans of the enemy to keep your faith despondent. Resolve in your heart today, I will not settle for less than what you died for me to have. <laughs> I'm gonna press in, I'm gonna overcome, and I'm gonna cultivate hunger in my heart because you have drawn near. How we began our service, arms high and heart abandoned. Lord, I want you to have more of me. If you can pray that prayer, like honestly right now with something in your heart, would you just pray that with me real quick? Lord, I want you to have more of me. Will you say that with me? Lord, I want you to have more of me. Lord, give us a fresh revelation of you, our Father, our Creator, the source of all that is good. you need to respond right now. But this space is open to however you need to respond. To leap to your feet in joy. To come to the altar weeping. Remembering the kindness of God who will lead you out of wherever you're going through. The refreshment, encouragement of the We foolishly pray too often, Lord, I want more of you. And he is just going, I'm right here. I want more of you. So draw near, draw near and let us behold, let us behold God our Father.